Hey everyone, I'm Pip and I'm coming to you from our kitchen today. I've got sourdough baking in the oven, living my best ISO life. Um, but now I have the privilege of reading to us from God's word. So um, we're going to read from chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. We're reading verses 26 to 40. What then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three should speak one at a time and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is, a, it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only people it has reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet, a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting way, a fitting and orderly way. Good morning. When I was about 13, my parents started going to a new church. And one night, all the adults were there speaking in tongues. Some fell on the ground and some were laughing uncontrollably. Some of you would have experienced this kind of thing yourself. Others would have only heard about it. And depending on your perspective, it's either a clear indication that God's present there and powerfully at work, or it's an incredibly weird and strange human phenomenon, almost like group hypnosis. But much more important than our perspective is God's perspective. What does God think about it? What we're going to see today from the Bible speaks into this sort of thing, and it tells us what God thinks about it. We're going to look together at the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and I'll come back to this story from my past at the end. Today we come to the end of an extended discussion that started way back in chapter 12. This is our fourth week looking at this discussion. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. It's about 60 AD. They're a church that prides themselves on being really knowledgeable and really spiritual. But do you remember how Paul introduced this whole discussion? He said, Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. They think they're in the know. They think they're super spiritual. But Paul is showing them they've got things terribly wrong. And so in chapter 12, he says, Everyone has different important spiritual gifts, not just an elite who seem to be more spectacular than others. And then in chapter 13, he says what matters is not how spectacular a gift is, but that it's used in love. 
And then in chapter 14, he says that love means using our gifts to build up the faith of others. This is the clear principle that he's laid down across the whole discussion. Out of love, everything that happens in church must be done to build up the faith of others. This is always true. It's an unchanging principle. Church is not about individuals having amazing, mindless encounters or ecstatic experiences with the divine. Church is all about worshipping God as we speak clear, understandable truths that point people to Jesus, both followers of Jesus and people who don't yet follow Jesus. And in this last part of the discussion, Paul turns to what this principle means for them in their context. We're going to look at what it means for them and what it means for us. And the first thing it means is that followers of Jesus should come to church ready and eager to build others up. This is our first point. Come to church ready and eager to build others up. Look at verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? What should this principle look like for them in their context? Paul says, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. And he gives the principle again, everything must be done so that the church may be built up. I'm guessing we've all had that big fish in a small pond experience. Most of us have been in a workplace where the manager or the boss acts like their King Jong-un or they act like they're God's gift to the world. They're not special, but in a small pond, they think they are. Churches aren't to be like that. Every one of us is God's gift to each other, but we're not there to build up our egos or to shine light on ourselves. We're there to build up God's people. And to really build them up means pointing them to Jesus, helping them know and feel that Jesus really is Lord and Savior and that life really is worth living for him. The Corinthian church was, was a small pond wriggling with big fish. There were certain spiritual gifts that they considered spectacular and they looked down on gifts that they considered ordinary. But chapters 12 to 14 has basically been Paul telling them they're eager for the wrong gifts for the wrong reasons. Instead of focusing on their gifts, they should be focusing on what their gifts are actually for. They should come to church ready and eager to build others up, not themselves. And so that meant for them, a small group of people meeting in a house, that they should each come with a song or a teaching or a revelation or a tongue with an interpretation. That was how they could put this principle into practice. But an exact approach like that is probably not going to work for us as a church. If each of us brings a song on a Sunday, that's 200 songs. We'd be at church all day and all night. And at the moment, since we can't even sing, that, that's a lot of humming. It's the same with a, with a word of instruction. We can't all come with a sermon to give. But the point here is not that this is the only way that church can be done, but that this is the way they should do church in their context. There are different ways of doing church, but the same principles should always apply. Church is always about building others up and all of us are gifted to be involved in this in different ways. We could do things differently as a church. We could have different people lead us in songs that haven't been planned beforehand. We could have two or three people preach instead of one. We could have a, a time of prophecy, an open mic type thing and a time of weighing prophecies. There are lots of ways we could do church and it's not our place to judge those who do church different to us, but it is our job to ask ourselves the question, 
What's the way we can most helpfully build up God's people for us in our culture in Modbury? And even though that's not going to be each of us bringing a song to sing, it still is each of us coming to church ready and eager to build each other up through singing. If we all come with hearts ready to worship God by singing, then we'll build people up. But if we don't come ready to do that, then we probably won't build people up. There's nothing more deflating than when people are just going through the motions with singing. If I sing, I stand in awe of the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, but really my voice and my body language is singing, I stand so bored in the presence, then we won't build others up at all. And it's the same with the word of instruction. We could think that 10 people speaking for two minutes each would build us up more than one person speaking for 20 minutes. And it might, it might be beneficial. It might be more entertaining. But if that was our regular practice, it, it probably wouldn't build us up very much. There's not a lot you can say in two minutes. And the truth is that passages like today would never really be touched on because even speaking for 20 minutes on this passage is nowhere near enough time to cover it all. There are many ways we could do things at church, but the guiding principle is always what is going to be the most beneficial for building people up. And each of us should think through, how can I be involved in that? How does God want me to build someone else up today in the formal part of the service, but also in my conversations before and after the service? I read a story from someone talking about how every Sunday his aim is to pray with someone who God brings across his path. That's his way of making sure he's at church, not focused on himself, but focused on others. I've got a little motto that I, I often remind myself. I say to myself, come expecting to give and hoping to receive. But let's return to them at Corinth and their situation. They were a house church, a small group of people. So in their services, they probably could all have a speaking role a lot easier. But even in their context, Paul's point is that actually not all of them should speak. There are times that they should be silent. Even though they might have an amazing gift, even though they might come prepared, even though they might have a message from God that they want to share, still there are times that they shouldn't speak. And this is our next point. We should come to church realizing that having a gift doesn't mean it should always be used. There are three times that people are told they should stay silent in this passage. And actually, the exact same word is used all three times for being silent, even though it's translated slightly different each time. So first of all, Paul writes that you're to be silent if your gift doesn't build others up. Look at verse 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Paul says it doesn't matter how impressive they think speaking tongues is, it's never of any use in church unless it's immediately accompanied by something that is useful, words that can be understood by everyone. Now, this is true for speaking in tongues, which was what they were impressed by, but it's true for all sorts of things that we might be impressed by. It doesn't matter how impressive your gift is. It doesn't matter how supernatural it is. If it doesn't build others up in their faith in Jesus, then Paul is saying, please keep that gift silent in church. Someone's gift might be hilarious. It, it might be clever. It might be informative. It might be sensational, gripping, emotional, compelling. It, it might bring tears to our eyes. But if it isn't building others up to follow Jesus, then whatever it is, it's not for church. This principle is quite helpful. There's a lot we could do in church, but if it fails this criteria, then we just don't do it. 
Each and every part of church only belongs if it builds up the church. And so tongues without understandable words is never appropriate for church. This is also true for preaching that no one can really understand, songs that are so archaic and cryptic that they're meaningless. It also applies to running the service in a language no one can understand, like Latin or Elizabethan English. It's just never appropriate. If we're ever tempted to do something that's not going to build others up in church, we should stop and instead in that moment, we should just be silent. The next time Paul says we should stop and be silent is if someone else's gift is more fitting for that moment. Look at verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should carefully weigh what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. It's the same word here for being silent. And this is quite extraordinary when you think about it. Someone's there and they're sharing what they think is a message from God and they're just getting into full flight when someone else stands up and says, actually, can I speak? And what I would want to say is, no, you can just wait your turn, thanks very much, until I'm done. But Paul says the appropriate thing to do is to be silent and let them take the floor and speak. There's a real sense of humility here. Instead of caring all about what I have to say and my dignity, my exercising of my gift, instead I'm to recognize that God gives everyone for the building up of God's people. And I'm so to care what God has to say and care about the building up of God's people that I happily fall silent. The principle is that if someone is able to build others up more using their gift in that moment, then we'll gladly fall silent. We certainly won't, won't talk over the top of each other or try to hold the floor. Now, this plays itself out in all sorts of ways in church. The focus is not on our gifts and us holding on to our right to use them. The focus is on the purpose of the gifts and their outcome. And when that's truly the case, then we'll gladly step aside so that someone else can achieve the outcome better than us in that moment. I've seen this kind of thinking with musicians. It's not necessarily easy, but I've seen musicians say, I only want to play if I'm the best one to serve God's people. You can have the musician who really wants to play and it's got little to do with serving God's people and everything to do with them performing. And when a better musician comes along, they're completely affronted by the idea that they might step aside. But if that's the case, they've lost the purpose of church. Church is not about being big fish in small ponds. But there are other sort of ways that we can get this wrong too. I remember at a previous church, there was an amazing music musician who could serve God's people so well. He could lift the music wonderfully and he was really needed, but he wouldn't play. Why? Because the other musicians made him look bad. His shine was tarnished by their lack of ability. Do you see that? You can use your gifts for the wrong reasons and you can refuse to use your gifts for the wrong reasons too. I've seen this with service leaders or preachers or people who could take up front roles. Some love being up front and they do it in a way that draws the focus onto themselves and that's missing the point. But I've seen some people who would do a great job up front, who are gifted, but they won't do it because they prefer not to have to handle having the attention on themselves. Both ways of thinking are actually the same. Both are too focused on self and not focused on God and building up his people. If you have a gift that will serve God's people, then use it, whether it's fun or not, whether it's easy or not. But if someone else is better able to serve God's people in that moment, then we should gladly fall silent, whether that's easy for us to do or not. 
You know, think about it. If Billy Graham was still alive and he joined our church and he volunteered to preach a third of the time, would it be right for me to say, sorry, Billy, this is where I shine? No, there's no way that would be right. Now, there's one more time that silence is called for, and that is if using your gift goes against the way God has ordered things. This is where things get really difficult in this passage. Look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. This is really confronting. It feels completely at odds with how we see things these days. And at first, it feels like it just comes out of nowhere. But just like a few weeks ago when we read about head coverings in chapter 11, we need to first try and understand this passage in its original context before we jump to reading it in our context. These days, I think it's fair to say that we're not very good at trying to understand past contexts or even views that are different to ours. If something doesn't sound the way that we like to hear it, we're pretty quick to tear out the page and burn the book and denounce on social media anyone who thinks differently. But if we're serious about truth and seeking understanding and peace, that's not a good approach to life. And for those of us who follow Jesus, it can't be our approach with this because we know that scripture is God's word to us. So ripping out pages is not an option. Ignoring this is not an option. Seeking God's truth and understanding why God's put this here is our only option. And there are some very sophisticated attempts to try and ignore this part of the Bible. And there are some very unsophisticated attempts as well, but they all fall down because in the end, they all want to tell the Holy Spirit that what he's breathed out here is inferior or it's culturally bound or it's irrelevant to us today. The right way to seek truth and understanding in Scripture is always to ask, what is the unchanging principle that God wants us to hear? And how do we figure out how to apply that principle to our day and our culture? So let's do that. And the first thing that we've got to wrestle with as we do that is why does Paul say women should remain silent in the churches when just before in chapter 11, he said women should pray and prophesy in the churches? What's going on here? Now, remember that in this moment, Paul is talking about weighing up prophecies. And in this process, Paul is saying that women shouldn't be involved there at church. Look at verse 34 again. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. This is Paul's third example of a, of a moment when someone is to be silent. He's used the exact same word three times now. He's not at all saying that someone who speaks in tongues should be silent for all of church or that a prophet who sits down should be silent for the rest of church. And having said previously that women should pray and prophesy in church, he's not now contradicting that. What he's saying is that part of doing things in an ordered and peaceful way is for prophecies to be weighed up by the men. Not because men are more gifted. That's never been Paul's point. His point has been the exact opposite. It doesn't matter how gifted you are. What matters is that you use your gift in the right way for the building up of God's people. And Paul consistently says that women exercising the kind of role that has them having authority over their husbands or other men in church goes against the way that God has ordered things. This is not about equality. It's not about giftedness. It's about something that God has built into families and how this spills over into his family, his church. 
The idea here is that if a wife thinks that a prophecy should have been weighed differently, rather than having that discussion there in church, she should have it with her husband at home later. Having husbands and wives weighing in together, possibly disagreeing or maybe getting offended on behalf of their husbands, it doesn't lead to order, it potentially leads to chaos, and it doesn't build up the church. And the principle that's behind the scenes here is the exact same one that Paul talked about in chapter 11. It's the principle of headship. It's the same principle you see Paul talk about in Ephesians 5 and in 1 Timothy 2 and Colossians 3. And we might not like this idea, maybe because we've seen terrible corruptions of it, maybe because we can't help but interpret it through modern lenses. But if it really is from God that men are to step up and lovingly lay down their lives for their wife and their family, and if it really is the case that this relationship in the family is to be reflected in how the church family operates too, then we need to be very careful before dismissing Paul as misogynistic or bound by his culture, or as unclearly giving the commands of the Lord. Now, don't get me wrong. We should absolutely reject all forms of control of women, all forms of abuse, physical, emotional, economic, verbal, spiritual. We should reject all forms of male selfishness or superiority, all forms of diminishing the importance of women in ministry. We should reject all those things, but the principle of headship gives us every reason to reject those things. And so I say to you, if you're a man doing those kind of things in small or big ways, stop and get the help you need. And this is hard stuff. And like I said, 20 minutes is, is not long enough to cover it. And church online, it's not really the best way to talk about all this. And even face to face, there's still an awful lot here that we need to graciously wrestle with. We're going to have a question time at Mudbury School Hall after Church Online finishes. And I'm also going to talk a bit more down there at Mudbury Primary School about what place speaking in tongues and prophecy should have in our church, in Trinity Church Mudbury. If you're at home and you'd like, you'd like to hear more about that, then you can go onto our website and you'll find an extended version of this talk. But for now, let me summarize what we've seen and then I'll return to the story that I started with. We could summarize what we've seen like this. Church should be about building others up and that means things must be done in a right and orderly way. Through Paul, God is making it clear that it's never okay to say, I have a gift, therefore I must use it. It's never okay to say, I have the Holy Spirit's prompting and, and therefore I must speak now. The Holy Spirit prompts us to have self-control. The Holy Spirit prompts us to care more about building God's people up in the way that God has shown us than to care about our right to exercise our gifts. We should come ready and prepared to church to build up God's people in the formal part of church and in the informal parts, informal times too. And as we come back together, being clear about building each other up is going to be more important than ever because it's probably going to be a bit more difficult to do that than it has been in the past. Some of us will still be at home, not yet ready to gather. We still might not be able to sing on the 26th of July when we come back together. We certainly can't hug or shake hands. We need to try to keep maintaining 1.5 meters distance. And so our ability for human connection is restricted. And the reality is that this is going to make building up each other even harder. 
But in a way, the challenges are a good reminder that we need to focus on what's really important. Instead of relying on singing and the, and the things that we've taken for granted to build us up, how are you going to come prepared to build others up? Now, more than ever, we can't be passive. We need to be active more than ever in reconnecting with each other, active in welcoming new, welcoming new people, and active in helping people who don't know Jesus come to know him. That night, all those years ago, when our parents were speaking in tongues and laughing and us kids, we all looked at each other and we wondered what we were supposed to do. We looked at them on the, on the ground laughing and we thought, wow, how extraordinary. But it did nothing for building up our faith. In fact, all us kids went outside and played in the park in the dark with the drunks and who knows who else. That's not order. That's not building people up. It might be extraordinary, but it's not what church is about. God's plan for church is so much better. So let me ask you over these next few months, what work does God want you to do for him? How does he want you to build up his people?